Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Just want to greet all of those that are joining us across the city, around the nation, around the globe, and the fact that this morning we have a packed house, 25 people. We put one person in every section, and that's how we filled it up today. Ah, the whole world's opening up. The church is still at 25. I could cry, but I'm going to laugh because what else can I do, right? Anyway, we're going to have a great day. want to welcome all you folks that came and joined us today, and of course those online. So today, I'm going to conclude this series that began a few weeks ago called Jailbreak. And we've been looking at the fact that Jesus came to set the captives free. And maybe, whether you knew it or not, that every one of us struggles with some sort of level of bondage or captivity of one sort or another. We are all prisoners in one sense to things in the world. And what we've been learning is how to get free. And I know when I began this series, there were some of you thought, well, this series, Jailbreak, is not really going to apply to me. Reminds me a little bit of the story of this guy. He was the defendant in a trial. And at the beginning of the trial, he pleaded guilty. Halfway through the trial, it's been a whole week, he stands up and he says, Your Honor, I'd like to change my plea from not guilty to guilty. The judge says, Why are you changing it now? If you'd done that a week ago, you could have saved us all a lot of time and trouble. He says, Well, until I heard all the evidence, I thought I was innocent. And I think we're a little bit like that. I've been giving you the evidence, and some of you are beginning to discover maybe you're not just so innocent after all. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into our overall text, one that I've been looking at the whole time. And it's out of Luke chapter 4, where Jesus describes his mission statement in the earth. So we're going to look at it one more time. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So there it is. Once again, came to set the captives free, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then he lands this thing with this, this expression. He says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. That doesn't sound that great to me, an acceptable year. But after the last 12 months, how many of you would be happy with an acceptable year? <laughs> We'd be just happy with an acceptable. I don't need, Lord, I don't even need a good year. Just give me an acceptable, just a, a reasonable year. Well, that's not exactly what this means. It actually could be translated favorable year of the Lord. And it actually is a nod to the year of Jubilee. Now, he didn't say the year of Jubilee because it's not the year of Jubilee. It's something completely different. But it's a nod to it, an allusion to the year of Jubilee. And if we understand the year of Jubilee a little bit, we'll understand what he was talking about. So let's go back, backtrack a little bit and talk about that. So we know this, that when Moses was getting instructions from God as to how to live when they got into the promised land, he gave them a whole bunch of parameters. One of them was this. When they went into the promised land, he was going to distribute the land amongst the tribes. And then the tribes would go and distribute the the land amongst the individuals. So far, so good. But God knew In his infinite wisdom, he knew what human nature was, and he knew what people would do with it. 
He knew that like every nation before and every nation after, here's what happens, is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And you're going to have some who are going to be wildly successful, others who are going to fail at business and fail at farming and whose lives are going to crash and many are going to end up in debt. Some will even end up in slavery. So he did something that's never been done in the history of the world before or since that he called the year of Jubilee. And every 50th year, was a 50th year was the Jubilee year. And in that year, they set the captives free. Literally, all the slaves were let free. All the debts were released. And any historic lands were given back to the original families. It was an amazing thing. Why? Because he knew what would happen. He knew they would end up like the other nations. You study history, you discover this. They don't use these terms. But pretty much every nation has ended up into some sort of feudal system or another where the rich become richer and the poor become poor. If you look at our world right now, and I'll just throw this slide up just as an example, 1% of the population of the world own 99% of the wealth in the world. If that's not a wealth disparity, I don't know what is. But the more extreme one is on the right. There are eight people... Eight billionaires in the world, and you know their names. They're Elon Musk and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and four others. And those eight men own more wealth than the bottom half of the entire planet. 50%, 3.6 billion people, and they have more wealth than half the world. Now, even the most radical capitalist has to admit there's something on some level that seems a bit perverse about that. And so God, he had this mechanism in place and he thought, I'm not going to let Israel become like that. And we're going to have a year of Jubilee and every 50 years, excuse the expression, we're going to have a great reset and we're going to let every generation have a redo. You know, there's a lot of people, if they could have a redo in life, they would take it. Now, if I'm one of the eight richest people in the world, I don't really want a reset. I don't really want a redo. I'm good. Let's just leave things the way they are. But God wanted to set people free. And so he came and he did this. Israel wasn't very good at it, by the way. They eventually stopped doing it because, you know, the people, the powers to be didn't want to do it. But what Jesus does is he comes along and he's saying, this is what I'm going to do in your life. Now, it's not the great reset because it's not global. It's not for everybody. But here's what, why it's the acceptable year of the Lord is that when we come to Christ, he gives us a redo. He says this, he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We get a new start. And it's the acceptable year of the Lord or the favorable year of the Lord. It's not for everybody, but it's for you. And here's the thing. You don't have to wait 50 years to get it. 50 years, frankly, is way too long, right? I mean, that's almost a life sentence. And I'm not sure I want to wait 50 years for anything. It's like this guy, he's been arrested, he's in prison, he's serving the first day of a very long sentence. His cellmate says to him, so what are you in for? He says, it's a weird story. I went to the doctor, the doctor gave me one year to live, so I shot him dead. Went before a judge, he gave me 50 years. Problem solved. (laughs) That is so funny. Thank you for coming and getting that joke. Need 25 more of you. And so, and so here we are, we're looking at this idea today, and I'm calling it not the Great Reset, I am calling it the Great Escape. 
because we have to escape the snares of this world, and I'm going to show you how to do it. So we're going to go in our verse here today. The verse I'm going to share with you is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and it says this. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, it's clear from this text that this is not talking about an everyday tribulation or difficulty in life. He specifically uses the word temptation. Yes, it is a trial, but it is actually a trial that is testing you through temptation. And it's a trial that is testing your integrity, your character, your virtue. And I got news for you. Every single one of us will be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. Right? Did he not go up into the wilderness where he was tempted 40 days and 40 nights? Let me tell you something. It wouldn't have called it a temptation if he wasn't actually tempted. <laughs> I know this is deep, right? And you know where it actually goes a little further? The scripture says that Jesus was tempted in all points as are we. Now, I know most people find this scandalous. Do you know what that means? That means that, that Jesus was tempted with greed. Jesus was tempted with lust. Jesus was tempted with all these things. I know we don't want to hear that because he's Jesus. I get it. Don't argue with me. Argue with the scripture. He was tempted with all points, yet without sin. And so what we discover is that at least Jesus was able to resist those temptations because we know where the temptations lead. The temptations lead to destruction and bondage and captivity. And that's why you have to be able to resist those temptations. Now, there's three things that he pointed out in this verse, and I just want to share them with you. And then the first one was this. He says, there's no temptation you're facing that is uncommon to man. And I know people think, oh, nobody can understand the things that I'm seeing. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Not true. Anything that you're facing. I have people come and tell me about their marriage problems and think they're the only ones in the world. And I'm thinking, do you have any idea how many times I've heard the same story? There's nothing new under the sun. We all have the same problems. So there's nothing uncommon. Second thing, maybe, me, maybe more important. He says that he will not give you more than you can bear. You can stand on that promise that he is faithful and he's going to help you and he's going to lead you out of that thing. And then the last part of it, and it's the best part of the verse. And he says he will make a way of escape. That is the great escape. He will lead you out of this mess. And a lot of times we think that when temptation comes, we have no choice. You know, I love what Oscar Wilde says in a funny way, not in a good way. He used to say this. He said, I can resist anything but temptation. You all get that, right? So how do we escape in life? What is this way of escape that he's talking about? And I'm going to reference a movie, an old movie. Maybe some of you remember it. And it was The Great Escape from 1963. Here's the movie poster. Uh, you can see it's starred, you know, James, uh, Steve uh, McQueen and James Garner, Richard Attenborough. It's a classic. And it's actually a great story. I've seen it a couple of times. It's actually a very good movie. Old movie, but a very good movie. It's based on a true story. In the Second World War, there was these POWs, prisoners of war. They were British allies. They were taken captive. They were held in a stalag in, in Poland. And they decided to stage an escape, a great escape, as the movie calls it. And here's what's sort of fascinating to me is what they did was they didn't dig one tunnel. They dug three tunnels. And then they codenamed the tunnels. They called them Tom, Dick, and Harry. 
And, of course, that's how they referred to him. And then they escaped, 73 people. 73 of these men escaped through these tunnels. Here's what happened. Some were, were, were killed, shot and killed. Some were recaptured and brought back to the barracks. But there were some that got free and stayed free. And the thing I want to talk about, the year of Jubilee in your life, the, the acceptable year of the Lord, is not just to get free, but to stay free. And so I'm going to give you the three tunnels of freedom today. And here's what they are. They're not Tom, Dick, and Harry. They are admit, submit, and commit. And we'll start with the very first one, obviously, and it's to, number one is to admit you have a problem. Anybody familiar with the 12-step programs know this, that the very, very first thing you have to do, step one, is always this, to admit it. In fact, if you're an alcoholic, they, they, this is the way it works. It's worded. Admit that you are powerless against alcohol and your life has become unmanageable. If someone will not make that admission, if you can't admit that you're the problem and that you're bound, you'll never get free. You all know that, right? It's an absolute truth. Absolute. They know that in AA. They know that in all the 12-step programs. And as Christians, if we can't admit where we are wrong, we are so hooped. We are so stuck. So I want to tell you a little family story about this. We had a family member that was actually an alcoholic. And we realized we were getting nowhere with him. He did not think he was an alcoholic. And so we staged an intervention. If you ever want to have a fun family outing, do an intervention. They're a blast. No negative emotions involved at all. It's just so much fun. You'll love it. It'll bring you all closer together. No, they're brutal. It's terrible. So we confronted him, told him he was an alcoholic, gave him the evidence. Everyone shared like you're supposed to do. Everybody had sort of more or less the same story. When it was all said and done, he would not admit he was an alcoholic. And in fact, he said this. He said, I will prove to you I'm not an alcoholic. I will quit for 12 months, for a whole year, 365 days, I'll quit. And it was around Christmas when we did the intervention. So we thought, well, it's better. He's not willing to admit it, but it's better than nothing. So we said, okay, go for it. And so he quit drinking January 1st of that year. And true to his word, he did not drink for an entire year. I'll give him one thing. He may not know what his problem was, but he's very committed and determined, right? He has strong willpower. So he quit for a, quit for a whole year. But here's where the story gets really bizarre. On December 31st, the very, very last day of this, absolutely true story, on the very last day, he went to the liquor mart and filled his trunk with cases of liquor. I said, what are you doing? He says, the price of liquor goes up January 1st. There's no way I'm waiting until tomorrow to buy it. And then January 1st, he started drinking. And as I used to say to him, you look like you're making up for lost time. Because he drank more after that year than he did before. You see, if we're not willing to admit something, we are so stuck. We are so hooped. And here's the challenge with the gospel. The the challenge we have today with the gospel is people aren't willing to admit that they need help. Now, let me ask you this. Who was the very, very toughest group? Of all the people that Jesus shared the gospel with, who did he have the toughest time with? Who was the most resistant? Who can tell me? Yeah, it was the Pharisees. The Pharisees, why? Because they didn't need any help. They had no problems. They had no son. See, they actually thought they were keeping the law. They thought they were fine. They thought they didn't have a problem. They certainly didn't need a savior. Why would you need a savior? 
If you didn't have any faults in your life, you remember the parable about the Pharisee praying in the synagogue and he says, thank God I'm not a sinner or an extortioner like that tax collector over there. Super self-righteous. But they didn't know. And you see, I look at our world today and we're really come around to that same sort of mentality. People today do, do not know what sin is and certainly don't think they have it in their life. They have rejected the idea of a black and white, a right and wrong. There is no absolute truth today. People do not know what sin is. They have got all kinds of euphemisms. They have called it all kinds of other things except for sin. You you know what I'm talking about. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a social drinker. I can quit any time I want. I'm not a drug addict. I've got a prescription for this stuff. I'm not overweight. I'm metabolically affluent is what I am. I'm not sexually immoral. I'm bi-curious. I'm not selfish. I'm just very committed to self-care, right? I'm not an axe murderer. I'm just working through some internal conflicts. We all have these things. We all want to have this, you know, sanitize what we are. When I was 14 years old, my mother took me to the doctor, thought I had mono, Turns out I was just lazy. (laughs) That's a true story. I was so lazy as a 14-year-old. All 14-year-olds are lazy. That's what I told my mom. Anyway, that's what we do, is we find ways of not dealing with the problems in our life. So I want to tell you a story today, super familiar from Scripture. You've heard it from me many times, but I want to tell it again. I'll tell it similar. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to drill down on one point and bring it out to really, really drive home this message. And it's the story of King David's greatest failure. And King David's greatest failure was with Bathsheba. You all remember the story. It was the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to war. But David stayed home in Jerusalem. So there he is. When you're not doing what you're supposed to be, when you're not where you're supposed to be, that's when you get into trouble. That's when you fall into temptation, people. And so he's sitting there. His men are all out fighting. And he's sitting there looking out the window. And what should he see out his window but a woman bathing on the roof. I'm pretty sure, wild guess here, that in those days they bathed naked, but that's just a guess. And there was lust in his heart because that's what happens to men when they visualize. And that's what happens to the human race because we're all tempted and he was tempted. And instead of resisting, instead of not dealing with it, he dealt on it. And he, he's the king. He can do what he wants. He calls for Bathsheba. They go and get her and bring her into his room and into his bed. And he beds her and weds, and doesn't wet her yet, but he impregnates her. Now he's got a problem because she's pregnant and she's married to another man and his name is Uriah and he's one of David's captains and you know where he is? He's where he was supposed to be out fighting the battle. So David's going, huh, I need to deal with this. Instead of admitting what he did, he tried to cover it up. And so he calls for Uriah and he comes back. He says, you've been a good soldier out there working hard. Uh, Why don't you go and, and, and sleep with your wife tonight and enjoy and so sends him home. He thinks, well, this will cover it up. Then they'll all think that it's his baby. When the morning he goes out and there he is sleeping on the stairs. He says, what are you doing on the front step? He says, I'm not going to go lay with my wife when my men are out in the battlefield dying. Turns out he was a more righteous man than David, right? So David thinks a little harder, comes up with a plan. He sends Uriah to the front where he is killed, where he knew he would die, essentially conspired to murder this man. And as soon as he was dead, 
he goes and takes Bathsheba as his wife. All good, right? Problem solved, right? Not so fast. Who knew about this? Pretty much everybody. Pretty much everybody. How about the servants that went and got him? Got her, rather. I mean, everybody knew what was going on. Everybody could see it. Everybody could see what he did. Everybody knew whose wife this was. It was kind of obvious, wasn't it? There was no covering this thing up. And that's what blind spots are. Blind spots are things that everybody sees but you. And so anyway, he thinks he's off scot-free. But Nathan is the prophet. Nathan has a plan. He's a very smart prophet. He has to be careful because the king is still the king. And you don't disrespect the king. So he comes and he says, David, I have this story I want to tell you that I'm concerned about. He said there was this man and all he had, he was poor and all he had was a little lamb. It's all he had to his name. And he had a neighbor and the neighbor was very wealthy and had many flocks and sheep and, and lambs. And, and this wealthy neighbor had a visitor coming and wanted to feed this visitor. So he went and he took the poor man's one lamb and, and fed it to his friend. And David said this, who is that man for that man deserves to die? And Nathan said, David, you are that man. Wow, how would you like to have that moment? Talk about busted. And when David realized that it was him, you know, here, here's what we need to talk about about David because he's supposed to be the man after God's own heart, right? And here he is committing adultery and here he is, you know, covering it up and here he is conspiring to have someone murdered. What kind of man after God's own heart was this? But if you go and look and see his response, he not only repented, he actually anguished. He groveled. He begged God to forgive him. When he finally realized what he had done, he was just in the absolute depths. His heart was broken. Now, there was a consequence of that sin, and that child died. But let's talk about this. Did God forgive him? And the fact is that God is faithful, and God made a way of escape for him, and God forgave him. He, he should have been, at the very least, his reign should have ended. Maybe he should have lost his life. But God set him free, let him go. He continued on in his reign. And in fact, as he, he married Bathsheba is what happened. And then what happened is she had another child. That child's name was Solomon. Solomon became the king. And you all know the story that Solomon's descendant was a man named Jesus, the savior of the world, the son of God. Do the math on this. Jesus is a direct descendant of David and Bathsheba. Look at the way God took this extraordinarily broken man. And when he admitted what he had done, God restored everything and gave him more than he would ever imagine. And see, that's the thing we need to remember. It's a win. When you admit you're wrong, it's a win. So I'm going to tell you a story that happened to me this week. You probably all have mishaps. How many of you made a mistake this week? Anybody? Or am I the only one? How many, of the, how many today? How many in the last hour? <laughs> a few hands still go up. There's only 25 of us in the room. And so, so we look at this. We all make mistakes. So this week, I'm in this conversation with this person. And we start talking about a mutual acquaintance whose marriage had fallen apart. And there's a, some sordid details to this story. And I started sharing these details. And you know what? Even as I was started sharing them, I realized I shouldn't be sharing these details. Even though it was sort of a common story, like a bunch of people know this story, but I'm sharing them. And here's the rule, whether you've crossed the line into gossip. If that, if that person isn't part of the problem or isn't part of the solution, and you're telling something they don't need to know, you're probably already in the realm of gossip. 
And you know, it, it's, a, it's a terrible thing because gossip has a life of its own. Here's what I always tell people. I say, you know what? I don't like to gossip, so listen carefully because I'm not going to repeat myself twice. You know, you want to, you want to, you know. <laughs> and we all get caught up in this. So, so anyway, I'm, I realize that as you, even as I'm saying it, that I'm gossiping. And so then it wasn't half an hour after I thought, I should not have told that story. That was my, not my place to tell that story. And I'm feeling convicted of the Holy Spirit. So I quickly just sent them a text and, and, and said, you know, I really apologize. I was out of line. It was gossip. And uh, I just thought that's what we have to do. That's how we respond really quick. You just have to admit you're wrong. What are the consequences? See, we know there's consequences. Even something small like gossip has consequences. The possibility of that coming back to you, a little birdie told me so. You know, there's all kinds of possibilities because gossip takes on a life of its own. And so I know now I'm telling you this story and I'm thinking this is, must be so comforting for you to know that your pastor is a gossip, <laughs> right? right? I, I, I feel, even telling this story, it feels stupid. And I think this, is, this just puts me in such a bad light. But you know what? We're human. We all are. We all make mistakes. It's like the story of these three pastors. They were having breakfast together. They met, met regularly. And this particular week, they decided, one of them started it and decided they were going to tell their deepest, darkest secrets. And so the first one said, I, I need to tell you guys something. I have been embezzling money from the church for 10 years. And, and, I, and I just feel so glad to get that off my chest. And the second guy said, well, I, I've got to confess to you that I've been having an affair with my secretary in the church for four years. And it, it just feels so good to get that off my chest. And the third pastor said, I just need to confess to you that I'm a terrible gossip and I just can't wait to get out of this meeting. <laughs> so when we, when we look at this first one, this admission, it, it's really so easy for us to deflect it and say, I'm not really responsible for this. And I just want to remind you that there are other parts of this. See, one of the things we do is instead of taking the blame for something, when we were wrong, we like to deflect it onto somebody else or to something else. And we see that in scripture as well, don't we? You, you all remember the, the, what David, or sorry, not David, Adam, the very first sin, the very first man and the very first sin, the eat of the fruit of the tree. He's hiding behind the bush. God comes to him and says, Adam, did you eat of the fruit in the midst of the garden? Do you remember what he said? The woman you gave me, she caused me to eat. Did, did you catch that? She blamed, he blamed the woman. He blamed God. Blamed everybody but himself. And I, and I just want to ask you, how many times do we do that? We always want an excuse. We always want to give some rationale or, or validation for why we did it. And a lot of times the easiest thing to do is just reflect it and deflect it onto somebody else. I read this story this week, crazy story, I'll tell it to you. So there was this FBI agent, he had a gambling problem, and he, and he embezzled $2,000 from the FBI, probably took some, you know, evidence money or something, it wasn't hard to do. And he spent it, gambled that money away. He got caught for it. And so the FBI fired him. Because the FBI, I don't know if you know, they're supposed to be the good guys. So they fired him for this. Do you believe that he actually took the FBI to the court and he said he was discriminated against? And under the Americans with Disabilities Act, that they discriminated against him and fired him because his gambling addiction was a disability and the judge ruled in his favor and the FBI had to restore him? What is wrong with this world? where we 
have to be victims about of everything. It's always somebody else's fault. I'm just a victim in this. Poor me. It wasn't my fault. And this failure to admit to your part in it just drives me crazy. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Every night you turn on the, the news and there's somebody saying and blaming their problems in life on somebody else. Every night. Every night, doesn't matter what it is, a million different things. It's the government's fault. It's this person's fault. It's this organization's fault. It's everybody's fault but their own, right? And if I heard hear that, that excuse of racism one more time, I'm telling you, I, I know racism is a real thing. I'm not belittling that. But don't you think we're just overusing it just a little bit? Every single problem in the world, I don't think, is a racist problem. And yet, that's all we hear again and again and again and again. We're going to wear that word out. We really are. And you know what? Just because someone criticizes you doesn't mean that it's racist. Maybe you really are stupid, right? And you deserve to be criticized. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. Maybe if you get fired, it's because you're incompetent, not because of your age or your gender or, you know, your ethnicity or your religion or anything else. And maybe it's time for us just to begin to take responsibility for our lives a little bit. And that's what the first point is. The first point is to admit. The second point is to submit. Specifically this, to submit to the Lord. It's the second tunnel. So I want to read you a verse. It's James 4, verse 7. It says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there's a prerequisite for that, isn't there? What was it? Therefore, submit to the Lord and resist the devil and he will flee. You see, the devil's not going to flee from you. Temptation is not going to flee from you just because you want it to. It flees, he flees when we submit to the Lord. It is the prerequisite, it's the precursor to us being able to have the wherewithal because, you know, in ourselves, most of us are not very good at resisting temptation. We're not very good at getting free on our own. We're not very good at resisting the devil and resisting evil and resisting all the things that the world throws at us. But when you submit to the Lord, actually everything changes. There's a really funny story in scripture about this. Some of you remember, it's Acts chapter 19. And you have these seven men, they're called the seven sons of Sceva. And it's in the city of Ephesus and Paul's going around Ephesus and he's casting out demons and he's healing people. And these seven brothers are the sons of Sceva, the high priest in Ephesus. And they're, they're, watching, they're watching Paul do all this great stuff. And they kind of go, let's give it a try. I mean, how hard could it be? And they find this man that's demonized. And they go up to him. And this is what they said. Go read it for yourself. It's hilarious. And they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And the demon speaks up out of this man and says, Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. But who are you? And the man overpowers them. And it says, chased them out of the house, all seven of them, naked and wounded. What was wrong with that picture? These guys didn't know the Lord. They certainly weren't submitted to the Lord. And when we submit ourselves to the Lord, then we have the wherewithal. Then we have the power. Then we have the sufficiency to resist the devil, and resist the evil and temptation that's in this world. So I've told this story about King David's greatest blunder, greatest failure. I want to tell the story of his greatest success in contrast. And you all know what that is. If Bathsheba was his greatest failure, then Goliath was his greatest success and victory. And the story is such, and you've heard me tell it many times, but hang in there with me because I'm going to nail down one single point on this that's going to be helpful. 
So we have Goliath, and he's the, the, the champion of the Philistine army, and they're standing across this valley, and the Philistines are lined up against the Israeli army, and they're about to go into battle, but Goliath has an idea. He wants to do a WWF thing, and he wants to do his cage match with one guy, one-on-one, winner-take-all, and if he wins, then Jews serve them, and if they win or that person wins, then the Philistines will, will serve them. Doubt that would happen, but that was, that was the, the game plan. So it says that all of Israel, all of men of Israel, were dreadfully afraid and fled. So they were all off running. David wasn't even there. Because David was too young to be a soldier. He was under 20. And so he can't stand it. He wants to know what's going on. So he's bringing his sheep with him. And <laughs> along comes little Bo Peep along with his sheep. And he comes up to his brothers who are, you know, hiding from Goliath. And he says, what is going down in the hood, yo? Or however he said it. And so they tell him the story and tell him the story I just told you. And his first question out of his mouth is, well, what does the victor get? What does the man who defeats the giant get? And they said, well, he gets riches and he gets honor and gets the king's daughter's hand in marriage. And David goes, ow, she's hot. I'm in. That's, that's exactly how it's worded, I think, or at least that's how I remember it. And, and so he says he's in. He's, it's, it's a silly story. Go read it for yourself. It sounds like he's doing it for the babe. I'm just telling you. That's what it sounds like. And so anyway, he says, I'm in. I'm going to do it. And so he tries on Saul's armor. Saul's armor doesn't fit. So now he decides that he's going to go in with nothing more than his slingshot. So he goes in. <laughs> Do you remember what came out of his mouth? It's quite hilarious. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? Every time I think of that expression, I'm thinking, really, David? It's a little nervy, a bit personal, and it's totally hitting below the belt. <laughs> what would you say? I mean, of all the things he could have said, of all the taunts he could have made, you know, he could have said, you're too tall, your head's too big for your body. There's all kinds of things he could have said. But that's where he goes. And I'm thinking of all the things you're going to bring up, the fact that he's not circumcised. And you see, here's what's really important about this point. It's not a small detail. It's a big factor in this story. The significance of circumcision is so immense in the Jewish culture. So I'll just remind you about what it was all about. Was that circumcision was what was happening to the Jewish man. It was their way of expressing their covenant to God. And I'll tell you what it was. It was a symbol of their submission to him. And the most significant story about this is when Joshua was bringing the, the children of Israel out of the wilderness where they'd spent 40 years. In fact, every one of them, other than he, he and Caleb, were born there. And he brought them across the Jordan River and they were about to attack the city of Jericho. But before they went up against the city of Jericho, this great enemy, their biggest first enemy, God has a plan and says, oh, by the way, none of these men, while they're in the wilderness, have ever been circumcised. Now, they never did any battle in the wilderness either. He says, you better get them circumcised before they go into battle. And so he circumcises all of these men and they lie around on the hillside moaning in pain for three days. Now, I don't, I'm not a military strategist, but that seems like a weird preparation for battle to me. I mean, you are seeing how odd and bizarre this is. But when you begin to understand the significance 
of the circumcision, it actually all makes sense. So he lines them all up and says he, he pulled out a flint knife. So he pulls out a knife. That's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> so he pulls out a proper knife. He's got a lot of men to circumcise. He better have a lot of blade. He pulls out this knife and tells the guys to all drop trow. And one by one, <laughs> goes and circumcises all of them. I know you're looking at me. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make this illustration very poignant. So that's why I'm bringing out like a really nice, big, sharp knife. And in fact, this particular knife was a gift for the Philippines. This is the ceremonial Filipino circumcision knife. Actually, they use it for harvesting coconuts. But when you think about it, it's almost the same thing. <laughs> that's funny you're giving me credit for. All right, I don't know where you were, your head was going with that. Anyway, here's my simple question for you. Out of all the parts of the body, and I know I'm being a bit graphic, I know I'm making some of you uncomfortable, I'm doing that on purpose, because I want you to see how important this is. Out of all the parts of the body that he could have chosen, why that, why that one? Why that one? Why not the earlobe, right? I mean, you know, Lord, you can have a tip of my earlobe, don't need it anyway, I was planning on getting gauges anyway, you know, get the process started. You know, why, was, why this part of the I'll tell you why. It's a symbol of submission to the Lord because what they were submitting was the symbol of their manhood. And by doing that, they're saying, Lord, we are under your submission. Why, why else would it be? It makes no sense whatsoever, except God was trying to get their attention, get hold of them and say, you belong to me. And so when David brings this up, what he was saying is, I'm not a giant. I'm not big like you. I'm not strong like you. You come to me with sword and spear and, va- and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts of the armies of Israel. He ran up against that man with nothing other than a slingshot and he brought him down to the ground dead. You see, that's what happens when we submit to the Lord. There is no giant in our life too big that we cannot defeat so let me tell you a little story about this. Some of you maybe recognize the name Moshe Ruzan. And he was the founder some years ago of an organization called Jews for Jesus. And he was a Jew. He became a Christian. And he founded this organization, Jews for Jesus. They used to go out in the street. And they used to share the gospel with people. And uh, particularly Jewish people was their target. They would share it with anybody. But they loved to share about Yeshua, about Joshua, about Jesus with the Jewish people. So they would go in to the streets and the, the Jewish districts and they would share the gospel with people. And many times people would come to Christ and uh, they just really loved Jesus, this group of people, a unique organization. And anyway, one time he had a team and he was on Hollywood Boulevard in California. And they met a young man who was the son of a rabbi who had become a male prostitute. They shared the gospel with him. He came to Christ. He started joining their Bible study weekly. He was coming along just fine. And then he realized that he could not resist the temptations in his life that that world of his past had. And he absolutely had to make a decision. And he made a decision and went back into that world. And Moshe was so discouraged. He thought it was one of his greatest defeats in life. 30 years went by and he's in LA and he's preaching in this arena or in this auditorium. And at the end of the service, this man comes up to him and says, do you remember me? He says, I don't remember you. It's 30 years later. Well, guess what? It's that same young man. And he says, you remember you brought me to Christ 30 years ago and I fell away and I went back to that lifestyle. 
But I want you to know one day I realized my life was a mess and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I needed to escape this mess. And I surrendered my life to Christ. And the moment I did that, everything changed. Truly surrendered to him. And all of those lies I believed about who I was all these years, they faded away. Today I'm married and I have children. My, my life is, is going well. And we're in a part of a church. And Moshe just welled up in tears and realized that God is faithful. And he will make a way of escape. And he rescued this young man from this terrible lifestyle and restored him to who he was meant to be in Christ. So the first thing is we need to ad- admit. The second thing is we need to submit. And the last and the final thing is we need to comment. Commit for the long haul. I'm just going to end by saying this. When I came to Christ some years ago, I was actually part of, I would call it a revival. There was a group of us, uh, 20-somethings, and we were just a bunch of rabble-rousers. I mean, we were running around and drinking, and some of them were smoking pot and doing drugs and running around sexually and doing all that stuff you, you do. And after I got saved, there was this wave of people that came to Christ, all one after the other, all my brothers and sisters, all my cousins, all my friends, all their boyfriends and all their girlfriends, and a bunch of those people married each other. I married my wife. She was part of that group. And I married her, Kathy. She was part of that. And there was just this huge gang of us. And we just all come to Christ one after another. And I assumed that some 40 years later, we'd all be doing this journey together. And I'd love you to tell you that that would, was what happened. But that's not what happened. Because some of those people just could not commit for the long haul. And what ended up happening is one by one, probably about half of those people fell away. And let me tell you, their ends were not good. One of them, 51-year-old, drank himself to death at 51. Another, uh, he's on medication today for psychological disorders that he struggles with. Another one, or several, committed adultery and their marriages ended up in shambles. Others went bankrupt and financially were ruined. And I looked at these two groups of people and the ones that committed for the long haul and hung in there because sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's tough to hang in there, Right? But I look at their lives and they're strong and they're balanced and sure they've had struggles in their marriages, but they're all still together. And this bunch, their, their lives are, are, are just a complete mess and disaster. And I zoom back and the only thing I think of is what Joshua said to his men, you will remember. He said, choose this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You see, he came to set the captives free. He wants to lead us in the great escape. And the great escape is to admit you've got a problem, to submit to the Lord, commit for the long haul, and he'll make a way. Because he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And if God be for you, who can be against? Amen. Why don't we stand together in the room? just want to speak to those of you that are watching online right now. And I know some of you for sure got twigged a little bit about some of these things I said today. And you thought, that's me. I'm not fully committed. I'm not fully submitted. And I want to encourage you to make that decision today. Some of you, you don't know Christ. And I want to invite you this day to make that decision, to be a follower of Christ. And if you have never made that decision, if you haven't decided you're all in, today's the day. There's a little icon on there of a hand that says raise hand. And what you do is you click that little icon. And by doing so, you're starting the journey. You're not finishing anything. You're starting the journey today. And you're saying, yes, that's what I want to do. 
I will admit I have a problem. I submit to you and I'm going to commit for the long haul. And I want to pray for you. And I'm going to get everyone in the room to pray with me and repeat after me. And, and if you're listening, I want you to pray with me. So let's begin. Lord Jesus, I admit I have a problem. I'm a sinner and I'm far from God. But today it changes because I submit myself to you. And I thank you that you died on the cross for my sin, rose again on the third day, and forever lived to be my Lord. Lord, I'm making this decision today to commit to the long haul because you have given me a rescue plan that I can come out of the world and into your kingdom and into freedom. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand today. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.